Well, we've been seeking to probe the depth of uh, what it means to be cleansed in this Day of Atonement when Jesus is cleansing the heavenly sanctuary. And for us to be able to see the connection between uh, unknown sin in us as converted people and that Jesus desires to reveal that unknown, unconscious sin in us helps to illuminate what corporate repentance is about, meaning that uh, all humans are connected in that we come into this world with the same standard equipment of a fallen nature and an alienation from God. But the wonderful gift that Jesus desires to impart to us is that he can remove the enmity of our hearts, the alienation, and we can be at one with him. And this goes far beyond the common understanding of the plan of salvation. Uh, The plan of salvation, as wonderful as it is to be forgiven of our sins, it is not a negative of the removal of our, our, just the removal of sin and leaving us in in an unreconciled state to God, but it also contemplates bringing us fully into harmony with God. That's the deeper meaning of the second apartment ministry of Jesus for us. I, a couple of years ago, I boarded an airplane in Grand Rapids, Michigan, flying back to San Francisco. I'd been visiting my family there, and the seating assignments are just arbitrary. And so I was seated next to a professional-looking woman, and uh, we introduced ourselves, and she identified as herself as being a professor, a teacher, and in a well-known school there in Grand Rapids at Calvin College, which is a Calvinist school, with that name you can tell, and um, I immediately recognized her name. Her name was Ruth Tucker, and uh, she had written a book that I had on my bookshelf. It's entitled Another Gospel, and she has a chapter in there, Anti-Seventh-day Adventist, so I knew immediately she was anti-Adventist as soon as she introduced herself to me, and uh, then I when she asked who I was and what I did, I told her I was a Seventh-day Adventist minister. (laughs) And she said, how interesting that we're going to be flying from Grand Rapids to Cincinnati together. (laughs) 50-minute flight, you know. (laughs) We'll get a lot of talking and discussion in here. And uh, among the things that she told me was, when she learned I was an Adventist minister, uh, she said, you don't really believe in that Ellen White stuff, do you? and all of those weird visions that she had. Uh, And you don't really believe all of that heavenly sanctuary ministry stuff of Jesus, do you, and that investigative judgment? Why, that's just a face-saving device to cover up bad prophetic interpretation. And uh, I said to her, yes, I do believe in Ellen White, and I do believe in the sanctuary ministry of Jesus. And um, tried to at that time probably didn't do a very good job of giving a brief explanation to her. But uh, probably the evangelical world really doesn't comprehend or understand the deeper meaning of the plan of salvation as it has to do with Jesus' cleansing of the sanctuary. And maybe that's my fault. I bear responsibility for that. Maybe we have not clearly explained it to them in a way that they, they can understand it. On the mo- for the most part, most evangelicals reject it out of hand and see it as a bunch of legalism. But we want to go to the depth of it tonight. Um, most evangelical Christians have no idea what Jesus wants to accomplish in his ministry in this Day of Atonement. And it's kind of like there's a veil that's over their eyes so that they cannot see it, the truth of it, And for that matter, Seventh-day Adventists don't even comprehend what it's all about. Uh, They get stumbling, they stumble over the arithmetic of it all in the 2,300 years in 1844, and that's about it. They stumble over that, and they can't even get beyond it to the deeper meaning of it and the significance of it. And what we are seeking to do, we're studying the Word, and we want to know what practical sense there is for us in this. So if you can open your hearts tonight, Jesus wants to show you 
the deeper understanding of his ministry. And in so doing, uh, Jesus will take, well, let me just say this. You'll be 140 years in advance of most Adventists where they are right now. You will be a people in advance of the times of where most Adventists are right now. Because Jesus will be your teacher and the Holy Spirit will be your teacher. Um, I'll just kind of leave it at that. You know, God desires for all of his people to be up to speed and advanced in terms of their understanding of the cleansing of the sanctuary. And we need to, this is one of the things that we ought to pray about that the Lord would re, uh, put a hunger in, in the hearts of his people to know the deeper meaning of the cleansing of the sanctuary, which begins in our hearts. Most of us think that the sanctuary has to do with uh, heavenly arithmetic, 2,300 days. And in so doing, we ask the question, well, what in the world does that have to do with us, that heavenly arithmetic? Uh, and we, leaves us in the dark and... I think this must really grieve the Lord Jesus. Is this lighting okay? Okay. You see, there's a progression to truth, and unless you follow it all the way, you're going to be left behind in the dust, and as a result, your experience will correspond with being left in the dust. And we need to have present truth today in order to be fully up to speed where Jesus wants us to be. What we need to realize is that Christian experience that was perfectly acceptable in times previous to the cleansing of the sanctuary really becomes lukewarmness in our day, uh, a measured devotion during, uh, that is appropriate during the ministry of Jesus in the holy apartment, the first apartment, becomes iniquity when it's weighed against the incomparable greater scope of consecration appropriate to the ministry of Jesus in the most holy apartment. If you'll take your Bibles and look in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, it says this. Jesus says, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, sounds like a door, doesn't it? And no man shutteth. Jesus opens a door. No human being can shut it. And Jesus shuts, it says, and shutteth, and no man openeth. So here you have Jesus opening a door and going into another room and shutting a door and not going back to where he came from. He says, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door. Do you see that? It's an invitation to go with him into this room that he's in, through this door. I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. So, in practical terms, this means that Jesus has shut the door to the first apartment of the heavenly sanctuary, and he's not there anymore. So don't pray there anymore. His grace does not come from there anymore. But he has opened the door to the most holy place, and no man can shut it, though they may ridicule it, and uh, they may ridicule those who proclaim it, just like this Ruth Tucker was ridiculing my belief in Jesus' second apartment ministry. Now, Ellen White makes this interesting statement in early writings, page uh, 55 and 56. And quite remarkable, she says, Then I saw an exceeding bright light come from the Father to the Son, and from the Son it waved over the people before the throne. But few would receive this great light. Many came out from under it and immediately resisted it. Others were careless and did not cherish the light, and it moved off from them. Then a cloudy chariot with wheels like flaming fire surrounded by angels came to where Jesus was, and he stepped into the chariot, and he was born to the holiest, this second apartment, where the Father sat. There I beheld Jesus, a great high priest, standing before the Father. 
Those who rose up with Jesus would send up their faith to him in the holiest and pray, My Father, give us thy spirit. Then Jesus would breathe upon them the Holy Ghost. In that breath was light, power, and much love, joy, and peace. Now, you heard me say on Sabbath morning that this Seventh-day Adventist church was founded on as a charismatic movement. It was founded on the true Holy Spirit's movement. And the true Holy Spirit comes to us from Jesus out of the second apartment of the Most Holy. It is a spirit of truth. It is a spirit of light, which is truth, power, much love, agape, joy, and peace. An understanding, deeper understanding of justification by faith, which brings us into harmony with God. She goes on now in the same statement by saying, I turned to look at the company who were still bowed before the throne. They did not know that Jesus had left it. So they're still, their faith is still focused on the first apartment. Now look, Satan appeared to be by the throne, trying to carry on the work of God. I saw them look up to the throne and pray, Father, give us thy spirit. Now, those who refuse to follow Jesus into the second apartment, those evangelicals who just don't get it, they're praying for the Holy Spirit. You know, it's pretty solemn. It's pretty solemn. Satan appeared to be by the throne trying to carry on the work of God. I saw them look up to the throne and pray, Father, give us thy spirit. Satan would then breathe upon them an unholy influence. In it there was light and much power, but no sweet love, joy, and peace. So, in other words, to not follow the progressive truth of Jesus entering into the second apartment is to leave one exposed to another spirit, a counterfeit spirit. And that's why I say that the Seventh-day Adventist movement is moved upon a charismatic outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the true Holy Spirit versus the counterfeit Holy Spirit, which you see being shed abroad us all around us. By the way, that any church within the Adventist movement that receives of the spirit of the evangelicals is receiving the same spirit and source they're getting it from. And that's why it's imperative for us as Adventists to understand our uniqueness in this regard, or else we're going to be exposed to the, to the evil one. So those who have failed to follow Jesus into the most holy apartment may pray to heaven, but their prayers are being sent to a place where the door has been shut, and Satan is hearing their prayers and answering them, whereas we must enter into the open door that Jesus has invited us to enter, and we need to follow him into the second apartment, there to experience the full cleansing of character from all sin and come into perfect loyalty and unity with him. That's, that's the whole purpose for Jesus dying on the cross. We need to have a full gospel to deal with the sin problem that will ultimately bring honor and vindicate God. Evangelicals proclaim only a partial gospel, forgiveness of sin. And removal of guilt in justification is crucial in the plan of redemption. But did Jesus die on the cross in order to forgive us our sins so that he can save us in our sinning? Decidedly, no. And that's the deeper work of the cross and of the sanctuary. Its whole purpose is not only to forgive sin, but to cleanse us from sin. And it is grace much more abounding. So the evangelical gospel is good as far as it goes, but it's not good enough. And we need a gospel that corresponds with the work of Christ in the sanctuary. It's a cleansing work not only for the hospital for sinners in heaven, but also for the patients who are here on the earth. And Jesus wants to go to the root of our problem of sin in our lives, and that has to do with our character, our very mind itself. So will you choose to let him uproot the, the enmity, which is another way of saying the hatred 
against God that is deep-seated in every human heart that comes into this world? Will you choose to let self be crucified with Christ? Now, if Jesus was himself here this evening, and he is, but if Jesus were our guest speaker in our church this evening, what would be his message to us? And the answer is simple. He is a guest speaker already, and his message is readily available for us to hear. All you need to do is turn to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21. Let's go look at that together. Revelation chapter 3. And this would be Jesus' sermon to us, the church of Laodicea. Revelation chapter 3 and verse uh, 14. It says, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. There is a, a neglected aspect of, Uh, but essential preparation that is to be made before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the latter rain, uh, before it can happen, the solution to our problem may be far more simple than we have supposed, that most necessary preparation is a clear understanding of Christ's special message to his people in these last days, and that is the Laodicean message in Revelation chapter 3. There must be something in the Laodicean message which we haven't understood or received. How many of you acknowledge that we have not as yet received the latter rain or the loud cry that it has been delayed many decades? I think we would acknowledge that, wouldn't we? So if after all of these many decades of praying for the latter rain and the loud cry and we're still not fitted for it, Would it not be wisdom for us to turn our attention to the Laodicean message in order to find the reason for the delay of the latter rain and the loud cry? Well, we have been told about our condition of pride by Jesus here in verse 17. He says, um, because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, this is the New King James Version, have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And this is the remedy, verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me what? Gold, refined in the fire, that you may be rich. And what else? White raiment, raiment, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with what? Eye salve, that you may see and then... There is his rebuke and his call for repentance in verse 19. And he says, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. The invitation is to receive these remedies. With the passage of time, it's become apparent that the remnant church has never clearly understood the dynamics of this message of Jesus. Because if we feel rich and increased with goods, In regard to our understanding of righteousness by faith, listen, if we feel we know it all and we've already figured it out, what righteousness by faith is, and we feel proud of where we're at and satisfied because of our great progress in proclaiming it to the world, then we shall feel no heart need to study the Laodicean message. But if we sense a tremendous hunger and thirst after righteousness, if we have a deep conviction that history has brought us here to a place of great crisis spiritually and that the Laodicean message provides the key to unlock our present impasse, then the Laodicean message will surely be reconsidered with an open-minded candor and honesty. Now, the true witness here has listed, uh, first of all, the gold as the remedy. Uh, Is it because the realization of our doctrinal and spiritual poverty is the most difficult barrier in our consciousness? You know, I've heard ministers say to me, 
problem, Pastor, is not that we don't understand righteousness by faith. We do. In fact, we proclaim it all over the world. We understand righteousness by faith. The problem is we just don't practice it, they say. And therein lies the real problem, because if we did understand righteousness by faith, it would be practiced. No question about it. So something is wrong with our understanding of righteousness by faith. If you look in Romans chapter 8 and verse 7, getting to this aspect of the unconscious sin, the unknown sin, it says in Romans 8 verse 7 that the carnal mind is enmity against God. It's hatred against God. And until the people of God are truly ready for the sealing and the closing of probation, they most certainly do have a problem. I don't know of anyone yet who is sealed and ready for the close of probation. So it's obvious that we have a problem here, that there is enmity lying within our our mind. If we keep going into our graves, as have countless generations before us and ever since, Eden, we're going to continually take our problem with us to the grave. Not until this problem of enmity is solved can God's people possibly be prepared, as Ellen White says in Great Controversy 425, to stand in the sight of a holy God without a mediator. Uh, By the way, that simply means that the protective restraining hand of God that's over us right now Thank God for that. You know, since we're the object of Satan's attack and wrath right now, if God wasn't protecting us, we'd all be wiped out right now. But um, when the close of probation comes, Jesus will no longer stand uh, in the sight of a holy God. uh, We will be standing, as it were, in the sight of a holy God without a meteor. It simply means that the protective hand of God will momentarily be removed from God's people. Why? Because Satan will be given permission to put pressure on him in a crisis, see? And we know that we're not at that point now. We're enjoying peace and prosperity now, and thank God for that. And giving us more extended time, uh, you know, I don't know why God is so merciful. It's been 120 years, you know, since 1888. Not until there is a special work, then a purification of this enmity in our mind, uh, can we assume that the alienation is really overcome? What is this um, latent enmity against God, which is the root of the problem? Well, this is, this is what has created a need for a final atonement. But we just don't see it. We just don't see it. And that is because it is an unconscious sin. This enmity, this mind, that it, the carnal mind that is at enmity with God is something that we do not see. It's a blind spot for me, for us. And let's illustrate it this way. We, we are like our beloved brother Peter. How many of you know brother Peter, the apostle? Now, he was baptized. He was ordained for the ministry He was set apart by the ordination of God, Jesus' hands, to be an apostle. And after several years of schooling with Jesus himself, Peter, there was something about him that he did not understand about himself. He didn't understand some hidden motivations of his. And you can, this is what Desire of Ages says regarding what Peter didn't know. 673, Desire of Ages. He's talking about unconscious sin here. Listen. When Peter said he would follow his Lord to prison and to death, he meant it. See, that will be the state of God's people going into the plagues and and the Sunday law crisis. When Peter said he would follow his Lord to prison and to death, he meant it, every word of it. But he did not know himself. Hidden in his heart were elements of evil that circumstances would fan into life. Unless he was made conscious of his danger, these would prove his eternal ruin. 
The Savior saw in him, now here it is, a self-love. This is that enmity. And assurance that would overbear his love of Christ. Self-love will overbear the love of Christ. Christ's solemn warning was a call for Peter for heart-searching. Now, the true witness is coming to the Laodicean church and says, you don't realize it, but you are walking around with an empty suit on. You're naked. Because if the right pressure came, you'd be exposed. And, and you would be totally under shame and embarrassment. Because self-love would overbear your love for Christ. Now, could words more plainly say what Peter's problem was? It lay in his unknown heart. As our Savior beholds us now on the eve of our last great trial, what does he see in our hearts that he, mu- that he must reveal to us as being unconscious? When, when Peter finally denied his Lord, he did that which none of us would dare repeat in the Sunday Law crisis when The righteous must live in the sight of a holy God without an intercessor. Here's what Desire of Ages, page 713, says regarding our brother Peter. Peter had just declared that he knew not Jesus. By the way, uh, it was just a simple test for Peter where his real love was. And, And it wasn't a religious leader at all. It was just a little peasant girl that exposed him. Didn't take very much. There's no way that God in his mercy is going to permit us to even be tested that way before our mediator ceases his work in heaven above and the protection is withdrawn so Satan can put a little pressure on us. There's no way we can be like Peter when that comes. To be pushed over by a peasant girl like a domino, there's going to be a lot more pressure than that. Peter had just declared that he knew not Jesus, but he now realized with bitter grief how well his Lord knew him and how accurately he had read his heart, the falseness of which was unknown even to himself. Listen, Jesus is speaking to me and to you in this Laodicean message, and he's saying, you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You don't even know it. What is it going to take for Jesus' voice to get through to me? That he sees something there in me. And yet, Peter was a true, sincere, born-again Christian. Thank God the final tests have not come as yet. Um, Peter is in the grave awaiting the resurrection, but he cannot be resurrected until God's final remnant have passed the test and then all of the saints of past ages will be resurrected along with the living when they're translated when Jesus comes a second time. But the whole linchpin stands upon God's remnant overcoming through his power and understanding this about themselves of this latent enmity in their hearts. The Jewish leaders, here's another illustration of this unknown, unconscious sin. The Jewish leaders were pathetically sincere in believing. They believed that the whole nation required that Jesus die. They convinced themselves, in order for us to survive the Romans, Jesus has to go. So Caiaphas spoke. He was the retired high priest, you know. He was the old guy, old man who had retired and everybody respected him. And Caiaphas said, it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. And this he spake, and this spake he not of himself. Caiaphas offered a sociological reason. It's better to spare a million Jews and, and, and expend one in order to preserve our nation here. Otherwise, the Romans are going to wipe us all out. Good sociological reason, isn't it? But the high priest, who should have had the faith to recognize the Messiah, didn't even see Jesus as God's son. These men knew full well that they were crucified. Did they know that Jesus was an innocent man 
Yes, they knew he was an innocent man. What they knew not was that they were giving expression to an unconscious enmity against God that was buried beneath the surface in all carnal human hearts. Their words and their actions were being motivated by an unknown force within them. See, this is what corporate means. We share with that same enmity that they had. We have that same enmity that's latent within us. This is what, it, what the word corporate means. And hence the necessity to repent of this enmity that we have against God. We all have the same problem. Desire of Ages, page 745 says, Upon all rests the guilt of crucifying the Son of God. Upon all rests the guilt of crucifying the Son of God. Now, if we refuse this clear-cut truth, we may well set the clock back for another generation. We might be here for another century before Jesus can return. Spiritual pride evades this revelation. Impossible. Someone says, I could never crucify God, never would do that. Someone might insist. The evil that was perpetrated on innocent Jews by Christian Nazi Germany indicates the depths of sin. In our own time, we have only to look no further than uh, for example, Serbia, which is a Christian country that's dominated by Eastern Orthodox religion and the atrocities that are committed there against the Muslims. Any form of racial or religious bigotry is a crime against the Savior who died for all mankind. He feels the pain of it all. He is crucified afresh and put to an open shame by the sins of the world that includes our continued sinning. The unfolding the final unfolding of history will be the disclosure of the world's guilt so that all can see it at last. So to kind of set this up, Jesus, before he departs from the most holy place and finishes his cleansing there, aren't you thankful that he's speaking to you right now? to tell you it's my gift to get at the taproot of this thing for you so that you're not going to be exposed after I cease my mediation and you are revealed as an empty suit because that's what's going to happen to the whole world when they begin to persecute you with the Sunday law thing. Aren't you thankful that Jesus is showing you that? And this is why you can be a century or more ahead of your brothers and sisters in the Adventist church who are going beyond the mathematics of the prophecies to the deeper meaning of the sanctuary truth. Because when the world unites to exterminate the people of God in the final decree, this unconscious mind of evil is going to be fully manifest. They're going to say, all the troubles of the world are because this small minority of people are worshiping on the Sabbath, the seventh day. They're not conforming with the rest of us. Uh, who are worshiping on the first day of the week. Let's get rid of them, and God will be very well pleased and will receive his blessings. It's expedient that they go in order to save the world. A good sociological reason, isn't it? But it will only reveal their enmity against God in seeking to exterminate his people, whom he, firm, he completely identifies with them, see? They're crucifying the Son of God afresh in the person of his saints. And during this time where there is no mediator, the, the, no longer will the Holy Spirit restrain them, and their hatred of God's people will be in reality hatred of Christ, a fresh and complete display of the same unconscious hatred that was manifested at Calvary, as Paul says in Romans 3.19, that all the world may become guilty before God. In other words, in that day, the sin of the world and its empty suit is going to be outed and be opened before the whole world before God. The painful truth disclosed in the true witness's message to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans is that a related guilt is our real sin today, 
this enmity toward God, and this is what's holding up the latter rain. Beneath the surface, there is this carnal mind, which is enmity against God. All through the decades, this unconscious enmity against God has frustrated our best efforts to hasten the second coming of Jesus. Obviously, only the blotting out of sins, which is accomplished in the Day of Atonement, can avail to cleanse this deeper level of unknown sin. And when that work is done, the mysterious phrase, the final atonement, will be better, we will be better have a better appreciation for it. Because atonement simply means to be fully reconciled to, to God and to Jesus, you see. And what's really holding it up is this latent self-love, which is a hatred for God. And Jesus wants to lovingly bring that to our consciousness so that we can recognize it for what it is and make appropriate repentance. Forgiveness cannot be truly appreciated unless one knows exactly what they're being forgiven of and cleansed of. You see, the blotting out of sins is not some kind of a magical process. I know that many of your fellow believers think that. It's magic where God, Jesus has a stamp up there or some angel does and they just stamp out the record up there in some heavenly books. And this is not how it works because the books in heaven are a perfect computer record of what's in our lives, you see. And it cannot be magically stamped out of our lives without our recognition. The bride needs to make herself ready. Needs to realize that she doesn't understand righteousness by faith. Truly, she doesn't understand what true faith is. And uh, consequently, she doesn't understand agape. By the way, the goal is agape and faith. Ellen White clearly says that, doesn't she, Michael? The goal that we need to, our counsel to buy of him is his goal of love and faith, isn't it? And, I, and that is the order because when we see and appreciate what it costs the Son of God to die for us on the cross, to purchase our justification, our very life right now, our hearts are warmed strangely by that love. And that creates faith in the heart that we can choose to say amen. You see, when you realize that you are forgiven of your sins before you have asked for it. That love, that amazing love from the cross, that faith, it's faith. And true faith means a reconciliation of the heart to God. Because faith always works by love. It manifests itself in obedience to all of the commandments of God. A false faith doesn't work. It's motivated by self, see? And it produces dead works. You know what dead works are? Mentioned there in the book of Hebrews. Well, anything that is dead is a result of sin. So these are works of sin. And that's produced by self, you see. But true righteousness by faith produces works. They're moved by God's love and manifest in obedience to all the commandments of God. So it's no magical process that's going to do this work of uh, getting at the taproot of our self-love. The now unknown sins will be brought fully to consciousness and we will readily respond to the Holy Spirit by repenting of it. You know, it is the whole work of the Holy Spirit to bring unrealized sin to consciousness. Just like Jesus said there in John 16, 8, and when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, it says. It's impossible for such sin to be forgiven until the Holy Spirit imparts a consciousness of it. This is why there can be no automatic scrubbing of the tape by pressing the magic button or by saying the magic words, Lord, forgive me of all of my sins, without those sins coming to consciousness. The sins that are buried in the human heart must come to our consciousness before they can be blotted out. The good news is that the Lord will do the work if we let him. 
if we let him. Ellen White says this in volume 5 of the Bible Commentary, page 1085. God knows every thought, every purpose, every plan, every motive. The books of heaven record the sins that would have been committed had there been opportunity. God has a perfect photograph of every man's character, and this photograph he compares with his law. He reveals to man the defects that mar this life and calls upon him to repent and turn from sin. Now you can say, oh my, 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 I'm in big trouble. Or you can say, thank you, Lord, for showing that to me far in advance. I can actually be out front of this thing, of the curve, instead of behind it. (laughs) And that's why I choose to take it, don't you? That's the new covenant perspective. The old covenant is, oh boy, I'm in trouble now. <laughs> if God knows everything that's inside, you know. Boy, I'm going to burn, I'm going to be like a french fry, you know. But no, the Lord wants you to be advanced of this. And I believe that Jesus wants, is bringing you into that advanced light. So that you know the deeper meaning of what's in your heart. It's a loving ministry of, of the Holy Spirit. You see, uh, the, the record books of heaven are just simply a perfect photograph of your character. And for it to be blotted out means Jesus wants to remove that enmity in your heart, and then it is blotted out in heaven. You see. So we all have it. We all have these motives and these purposes that are tucked away, that are deep down in our heart, that even you and I are not aware of, But the Holy Spirit reveals those things to you if you'll listen to his voice. What will you do when he reveals these things to you? Will you repent? Will you bring them to Jesus? You know, our, here's an illustration, our morbid curiosity about the heinous deeds of others. Isn't it constantly fed to us in the sights and the sounds of the media? And our fascination with this. It just reveals what's inside of us. Oh, I would never do that, but why am I curious about that? Because that's in my heart too. That's there. But I'd never do that. But I'm morbidly curious about it. What is it, what is it like? You know, I've never experienced it. Maybe I can have a vicarious experience with it. And so we pattern you don't have this problem because you don't even have media in your home, right? That's one of the blessings that God has given you. <laughs> so, we pat ourselves on the back. We're congratulating ourselves that we're not capable of such atrocities. But the very fact that we spend our hours in front of this exposure indicates our interest in sin. Shouldn't we rather flee from sin and pursue righteousness? You know, there are two important factors that are the condition, condition the blotting out of sins. Just simply, the sins coming fully to consciousness, that's the work of the Holy Spirit, and a new appreciation of the cross. Those two things are involved in the blotting out of sin. What we need is a more clear proclamation of the cross of Jesus and its cost so that people are more fascinated with that than with sin. And then the Holy Spirit just lovingly reveals to us what we're unconscious about, what Peter didn't know, you know, about himself. If Peter had been with the Savior, you know, praying with the Lord, Lord, reveal to me what Jesus is talking about here. I'm not real sure about it, but can you show me? You know, then there would have been an openness, a hunger and a thirst. But Peter said, Lord, there's nothing that's going to keep me from going all the way with you. I'll go to prison. I'll, go, I'll even die for you. And he was all focused on how he would withstand whatever test would come along. It's all about me, 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 me. And basically, that's what most religion is all about. It just pats people on the back with their own love with self. But the true proclamation of the cross humbles self to the dust of the ground. 
when it sees the cost that it took for your dear Savior to purchase your very life and your forgiveness. If you take away the atonement that's provided at the cross and no sin whatever can be forgiven, much less blotted out, look at Zechariah chapter 12. Here's a prophecy unfulfilled, an unfulfilled prophecy here. In Zechariah chapter 12, I see our time has slipped away here. We're almost finished. Zechariah is the second to last book in the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. It says, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. David being the leaders of the church, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, those of us who sit in the pew. The spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierce. What's that? Seeing the cross, appreciating the cross, see? Yes, it says they will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. That's repentance. What leads to repentance? Seeing and appreciating the cross. And whatever of self that's there in us gets shown for what it is, as empty suit. And there's a repentance that's appropriate in light of the cross. This is the most holy place ministry of Jesus. And then it says in verse 13 and verse 1, in that day, in what day? When the cross is proclaimed. And when the Holy Spirit is moving, in that day... See, this is a charismatic movement, the true Holy Spirit. By the way, this movement, Adventism, started as a movement of the true Holy Spirit, and it will end with no less but more power of the Holy Spirit. And it will outshine all counterfeit spirit manifestations in the midst of this world and its religion. In that day, a fountain, it says, shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. For recognized sin and for unrecognized sin. Uncleanness. From known sin as well as unknown sin. This is an unfulfilled prophecy yet to be experienced by God's people. It, it is a... Prophecy having to do with the blotting out of sin. When the Lord says they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, it's clear that the Holy Spirit wants to convict us of our responsibility for crucifying the Savior. We can expect the Holy Spirit to be poured upon the church, giving a new vision of Christ crucified, revealing our own participation in the crime. And the Spirit will arouse in the hearts of God's people a new sense of oneness with Christ. And it will bring us into sympathy with Him. We will love what He loves. His desires will become our desires. If you'd like some interesting reading, go to tonight, before you go to bed, read uh, the Song of Songs, volume, or chapter 5, and the first five or six verses there. And you'll see where Jesus took the Laodicean message from. He took it right out of the book of the Song of Solomon. And what an interesting story that is. You know, the Shulamite maiden, her lover came on a wet, rainy night. He'd been out, whatever, hunting, whatever. Knocked at the door, wanted in. She had already washed her feet, pulled them up under the covers, put on her night clothes, and here he's knocking, wanting in. And she doesn't want to let him in. I'll get my feet dirty. You know, I'll have to put on my robe. And I'm all nice and comfy now underneath the covers. It's such a chilly night. 
and she lets the moment pass. And suddenly recognize, oh, I want him to come in. And so she gets up and she goes over to the door and opens it and he's gone. And the moment is lost. And Jesus has come to Laodicea in our history. And he's been rebuffed. Obviously for now for well over 120 years. I don't think that there's any other explanation for that than the fact that Jesus wanted to come a long time ago. But the problem is not with him, it's with us. For 120 years, we haven't even gotten out of bed yet because we don't want to get our feet dirty and we're very happy with the clothes that we have on right now. And so when... I don't even think we've gotten to the door yet to open it, to, to even search for him yet. But the hope is that in Revelation chapter 19, verse 6, it says that the bride makes herself ready. How does the bride make herself ready? By heeding the true witness. Is that correct, Michael? And Jesus says, buy of me the gold and, the, and put on the white raiment. And then, then the eye salve, which is the Holy Spirit. And repent, and there's a door open. This is what it means to make yourself ready. You see, there's some, Jesus has given it all, but there's something that the bride must do, which he cannot do for, him, for them. And, uh, you know, this whole thing about the eye salve and the spiritual discernment, the reason why so much is flooding into us from outside is because there is no spiritual discernment anymore, because a, a false spirit has invaded and blinded. Uh, the remedy for that is to receive his gold and his white raiment garments, and then you'll begin to see the distinction between the true and the false. And that's the Holy Spirit's discernment. And pray, you know, some, most, I, I know exactly where most are because I've been there. I've thought. What difference does it make what you believe about righteousness by faith? I'm tired of all the controversy of it. Just believe in Jesus. That's all you need to do. But Jesus is very specific about his truth. And it makes a whole lot of difference. And that's what imparts the ISAB of the we're going to need the Holy Spirit's discernment to get through these final days because we are under assault right now by, by the devil himself, by all kinds of infiltration of false gospels and false Holy Spirit. Well, praise the Lord, we can be in advance of the curve. The Lord wants us to be out in front. And so I encourage you to study the Laodicean message, the, uh, the message of the true witness and uh, every Sabbath and every Wednesday night, we try to keep it before our attention.